This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, the date has been set for Donald Trump to meet with Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Uh, they will not meet in the uh, demilitarized zone. The meeting is set for Singapore. Let's find out more about this. Simon Palomar is with us, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation, and is with us now. Simon, thanks for taking the time. As always, we greatly appreciate it. Hey, Scott, it's always a pleasure. So what do we know about this meeting, Simon, at this point? You know, not a whole lot other than the date, uh, June 12th, Singapore, which, uh, you know, it seems is a, probably a very good choice on the part of both governments. And uh, that, you know, no official agenda, no official itinerary has been released. And we really shouldn't expect that uh, until the last minute, if at all. But that um, denuclearization, or, uh, or in other words, Getting rid of North Korea's nuclear weapons program seems to be, you know, what the United States and uh, President Trump are going to want to talk about. Uh, but other than that, many of the parameters of the meeting they're still they're still either secrets or up in the air. So there's obviously been a lot of pre-meetings before this meeting will actually take place. So everybody has to know which each agenda is, and I'm guessing the fact that a date has been set. Um, they know what they're going to talk about. No, I mean, would there be any surprises? You know, there shouldn't be. But one thing to remember about this meeting is that in many ways, these two governments are almost going about this negotiation process utterly backwards. Typically, you wouldn't see two heads of government, two heads of state, meet right off the bat to start talking about this major irritant between the two countries. You know, in the past, every time the United States and North Korea have talked about uh, Korea's nuclear weapons program or its ballistic missile program, lower-level officials meet. They start working on the nitty-gritty details about, you know, what kind of concessions each side will make, what the pros, long-term process will look like, how we'll, you know, monitor each other's behavior to make sure we're living up to the deal. Kim and Trump seem to be willing right now to dispense with all that and get to the, you know, the big picture item, which is, you know, the future of the relationship between the two countries and how nuclear weapons fit into that. And uh, so we really shouldn't expect the agenda to change too much over the next month. But since this is a highly unorthodox way of going about this sort of diplomacy, it's, it's impossible to say that you won't see a a, a surprise in the next 30 days. So why is this unorthodox method working now? Why, why, why is a backward approach seem to be working? You know, that's a very good question. And there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of things at play that could help explain this. I mean, one is that, uh, Kim Jong-un, when talking with the workers party of Korea, that's the, the communist party there, when talking to the Korean people, he's been saying that, look, our nuclear weapons program, our ballistic missile program, they've been a long time coming, but they're up and running now. We've done enough testing that we're pretty comfortable that we've figured this out. We now have a, a working nuclear deterrent. So he might be feeling more confident. You've also got South Korean President Moon Jae-in, who's been a very effective diplomat. He's very good at taking promises from the Americans, promises from the North Koreans, announcing those publicly, and and he's he's not a belligerent. Fellow. He's a very skilled communicator, and he's been very good at finding out ways to kind of make the process sticky, make sure that if the Americans promise something or the North Koreans promise something, they follow through on it. And you've also got the fact that Donald Trump um, has staked a lot of his personal reputation 
on this process. He's very invested in it. He doesn't have a tremendous number of foreign policy successes to point to yet, but for whatever reason, uh, Kim wants to talk to him, and he wants to talk to Kim, perhaps against the advice of his advisors. So he has a, a lot, you know, personally riding on making this process work. Why would Kim Jong-un nuke up only to give them up? What does denuclearization mean? Uh, and, and, you know, is it, is it dismantled enough so it would take a while to, to start back up again? How quick to flip the switch? Yeah, that's the $64,000, or I guess nowadays $4 million question, however you want to put it. Um, a lot of analysts are suspicious of, you know, Kim's motives here. If this program has been successful, why are you suddenly willing to talk about it? So part of that is kind of what Kim might mean by denuclearization. In the past, when the North Koreans have talked about denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, they mean everyone, not just themselves, but that means South Korea can't acquire one, not that South Korea necessarily wants to, but also that the United States can't protect South Korea with nuclear weapons in the event of a war. That means, you know, essentially keeping uh, American nuclear weapons out of South Korea, out of Northeast Asia permanently. That's a pretty big uh, ask of the Americans, since they, you know, still have reasons beyond North Korea to want to keep those weapons on aircraft carriers or have the option to deploy them. That could be part of his gambit. Denuclearization, in Kim's eyes, could also be, yeah, a decade-long process. You know, we'll maybe we'll stop testing, we'll maybe do a little bit here and there, and maybe maybe even we'll keep the capacity to build an arsenal if relations break down in the future. But denuclearization doesn't necessarily mean North Korea swiftly and permanently and irreversibly giving up their uh, arsenal by any means. Would that not be covered in these pre-meetings? That's an important question. I mean... Typically, that wouldn't be covered if we were doing it the normal way. Right. First, you would see what can we agree on. You'd have right. low-level talks. You'd have that that process of figuring this out. You know, Mike Pompeo, when he was CIA director and now has Secretary of State's been to North Korea, you know, twice in the last month or so. It's possible that he's laid out, you know, very clearly. This is what we expect. Then the North Koreans may have. They have said, that's not what you're getting, but we still think it's worth talking. That's one possibility. Another one is they said, well, we're willing to talk about it and offer no guarantees. That's a, you know, that's a very hard question to answer right now because it isn't typically done this way. So what I would imagine is that North Korea is probably comfortable of committing to the idea of denuclearization in principle. If the United States was never hostile to them again, maybe if... Uh, there is a trend worldwide to get rid of all nuclear weapons, North Korea would be happy to participate in that process. You know, so it might be at this point a matter of principle rather than a matter of here's the nitty gritty about how we get to there. Donald Trump has said publicly, hey, if he doesn't like what he sees, he'll just get up and leave. Um, can you do that here? Is it that simple? Is it worth going to all this trouble just to come out with that result? I think it's very hard for the president to do that right now. I mean, of course he can. He's under no obligation to speak with Kim. Um, he's under no obligation to, to go to Singapore. But as I said before, um, Donald Trump's major foreign policy accomplishments, they've, they've been, I think, few and far between. You know, there was the withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, and then the announcement, well, maybe, in fact, we do want back in. There's the efforts to renegotiate NAFTA, where the United States is saying, we're going to do this aggressively, efficiently, we're going to get 
uh, a deal solidified long before midterm elections or long before presidential elections in Mexico, and that's looking increasingly unlikely. There's this Russia probe hanging over his head, and American relations with Russia have not improved. The fact that he can, he's gotten these minor concessions out of North Korea, release of prisoners, etc., to walk away from this this uh, meeting, it would be suggest that he got played as a fool, and he doesn't want that, to, that image right now. He needs to. I think there's a big political incentive for him to say, "Look, we got something out of this. This wasn't a waste of time. We're making progress on this issue." Simon, how does what's happening with the Iran nuclear deal play into all of this? Uh, obviously, allies not happy with uh, Donald Trump pulling out of this. Uh, Iran saying that they're backing out of promises that they've made. Uh, how is North Korea to interpret that? Does it affect these meetings at all? Yeah, there's no definitive answer there, but one possibility is that the North Koreans are going to look at the American performance on the, the agreement they had with Iran, and it's going to be in the back of their mind. But, you know, Iran didn't really substantively violate any terms of the agreement. They essentially lived up to it. Nonetheless, the U.S. pulled out. And the U.S. pulled out because of Iran's broader foreign policy behavior or things that Iran was doing that were not covered by the agreement. So uh, I think the North Koreans have to keep that in the back of their mind, that it's not impossible that some of these other issues that are major irritants in the the North Korean-U.S. relationship, human rights, uh, uh, North Korea's trade with with regimes like Iran, weapons trade, um, it's money laundering activities, it's uh, abduction of foreign nationals, it's past support of terrorism, that these it's not implausible that these could pop up in the negotiations and the Americans would say, well, we need to see some accountability on these as well. And the North Koreans say, well, no, it's not what we talked about. It's, it's got to at least, you know, make them aware that it's, there's a possibility that the Americans will change the rules of the game on them. And if they do, you know, then maybe they're not negotiating in good faith. Maybe North Korea cheats on its agreements or cheats on what it's agreed to do so far. So it, doesn't make Trump's task, I don't think it makes it easier. It doesn't mean that it kills it, doesn't mean that it's, it's an unsurmountable obstacle, but it does affect, I think, his credibility um, walking into these meetings. We went from fire and fury to now peace talks. Will this same tough effort work with Iran? Iran's a much harder case for a number of reasons. I mean, Iran is not nearly as isolated as uh North Korea is. Iran is a much larger country, much more economically and uh, culturally important country in the Middle East. Iran has friends around the world. Um, the best partners that America had to bring Iran to the negotiating table, that is the European Union, where they cut off um, their imports from Iran dramatically in order to force them to the table. The Europeans are saying right now that, look, we have no interest in revisiting this deal. It's a, it's a good deal. All parties are abiding by it. And with that divide between the U.S. and Europe, it's going to make it much more difficult for the U.S. to, you know, twist the Iranian army, bring them to the table. It's, it's simply not a comparable situation. And there's also no country like South Korea, which really has a huge vested interest in this, uh, making a, getting a peaceful resolution here. Longtime ally of the United States has influence with the North Koreans. There's no comparable country for in the Iranian situation. So this is going to be, it's a much different situation. And I think if the Americans are thinking our successes in North Korea can 
you know, paved the way for successes in Iran, I, I think they're mistaken. Um, can other countries continue this deal with uh, Iran without the United States? What does that look like? Yeah, in principle, they can, right? Uh, there's nothing that says um, the United States has to continue to be in the agreement for the agreement to still stand. However, the United States, um, because of the size of the United States banking system and the sort of sanctions they're talking about reimposing, which would essentially penalize foreign companies for doing business with Iran, and that business that might be completely legal under those foreign countries' laws, that the United States will penalize them by cutting off access to U.S. banking system, by uh, trying to take their American subsidiaries to court, fining them, etc. The United States has the ability to... Um, you know, essentially frighten and intimidate uh, European firms, for example, into stopping business with with Iran. So there's a huge chance that the deal will still stand. The Europeans will say, no, it's good. And the Russians, the Chinese will say, no, that it, it, the, the deal's still on the books. The Iranians will say the same. But that economic activity, that trade, that investment that was supposed to come back to Iran will simply dry up because nobody wants to cross the uh, the U.S. Department of the Treasury, which has huge huge powers to uh, enforce its sanctions. So, so, in the end, Simon is Iran nuking up now, and where does that leave the rest of the world? I wouldn't think that Iran would do so right now. I mean, their their best strategy is to, you know, essentially for the next six months at least, is be a you know be a choir boy, be a boy scout, right? Play by the rules stick to the commitments they said they'd commit to and w- wait for the Americans and the Europeans to continue to, you know, continue to disagree and see if they can exploit that disagreement. Um, an aggressive move right now to uh, rip the deal up, to uh, restart um, their whole slate of uh, uranium enrichment uh, activities, that would convince the Europeans that, well, no, in fact, the Iranians were planning to cheat all along and perhaps, you know, the president was right to kill the deal now. Uh, so right now, Iran's best bet is to keep their keep their fingers clean and uh, behave responsibly and hope that America and its allies um, drift apart. Who, some are supporting Trump on this. Uh, Israel is. Uh, who are others and why? Well, I mean, uh, of course, and, and uh, even I believe the prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Harper, spoke out on this. Yeah, uh, Prime Minister Harper signed a full-page newspaper ad with a number of other. Um, uh, former statesman from across the Anglo-American world, I believe, uh, former British PM, uh, former Irish First Minister. Um, but uh, the big winner right now is probably Saudi Arabia. You know, they're in a what you would call a, a long-term rivalry with Iran um, for dominance in the Persian Gulf, and it and it and it has to do with. You know, ethnic differences, linguistic differences, religious differences, good old, good old-fashioned political rivalry, um, uh, competition for a share of the world oil market right now. Because Saudi Arabia, of course, wants to um, sell part of its uh, national oil producer on public markets, use that money to invest in other sectors of the economy. So they need a pretty robust oil price to maximize their value there. So Saudi Arabia is certainly. Um, probably feels like they are a winner right now that the the United States is, you know, going to go back to a more hostile footing with Iran, put Iran on its back foot, undermine the Iranian economy, and that benefits Saudi Arabia economically, militarily, and politically. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. As always, Simon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
Oh, it's my pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Alex Manassian, uh, the accused in the Young Street van attack last month, is facing three more attempted murder charges, appeared in court today. Let's bring in Catherine McDonald, crime specialist, award-winning journalist with Global News, and is with us now. Catherine, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy out there. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So what are the latest uh, charges on this? Why are these charges coming through now? Well, the police actually talked about this week one, and they said that uh, originally they had charged uh, Alec Manassian with 13 counts of attempted murder, but uh, they had identified a few other uh, survivors, and uh, they had said that at his next court appearance he would be facing a three additional charges. So, so today the information was uh, new information was presented to the court. Manassian was uh, told that he's now facing 16 counts of attempted murder, along with those 10 counts of first-degree murder. Uh, he appeared via video wearing an orange jumpsuit, um, his hands by his side. He, he showed no emotion. It was quite a brief appearance. The courtroom, of course, packed with uh, journalists and uh, a few other onlookers uh, and lawyers. And the sole purpose of this appearance today was to add those extra charges? To add those charges. for the, We found out that he now has a, a legal representation. Um, and uh, that lawyer, of course, wants to get disclosure, which is basically information uh, telling him what evidence the police have. Um, the lawyer, Boris Patinsky, uh, he's, I guess he's quite a well-known lawyer in Toronto. Uh, he, he's you know, a 50-year-old man. I've never seen him in court before, but I hear that he's, he's well-respected. Uh, and he basically said, uh, when we asked him about how Alec Manassian is faring, he said, I don't want to make this about my client. I want to make this about the victims and their families. This was a horrific attack. And uh, he said, let's make, keep the focus on them. Um, but, of course, we want information about Manassian, his mental state, uh, and uh, he, he wouldn't really comment. Uh, we, someone asked, uh, do you believe that uh, this could have been a terrorist attack? He said, I don't believe there's any evidence to support that. Someone else asked, um, do you think he hates women? Um, Mr. Batinsky said, you know, uh, we have to wait for everything to come out in court. It, these are early days. And uh, Manassian was uh, sent back uh, to jail. Uh, well, he's in jail. He was, he was uh, kept in custody, was remanded into custody, and he will be back in court at the end of the summer in September on the 14th via video. Are you surprised we haven't heard more about this person? Well, we, we did. We learned a lot about him uh, the first week after he was arrested after this uh, tragedy. Um, you know, we, we did learn that he is on, on the autism spectrum. We learned that he lived with his, his parents and his brother, um, that he was a computer programmer. We spoke to people, you know, who knew of him from high school. So we've learned a lot about him anecdotally. Um, but uh, I, I don't know what else we're going to learn about him other than, uh, you know, I think what's most interesting from people I've spoken to is, you know, yes, he was quite successful as a programmer, but socially um, he was very introverted. And, uh, of course, we know that he was allegedly online um, writing, you know, part of this incel movement, which was uh, the, the involuntary celibate movement, um, men who are feeling re- who feel they've been rejected by women. You said uh, we only uh, we, we only know very little, yet we know so much. Is this a simple case? Are we looking for too much here because this is such a tragic accident? Are we looking for more than what's here? No, I mean I think everyone wants to understand the motive behind this attack. Yeah, and I, I've spoken to you know um, people who say to call it a van attack would be simplistic because police have acknowledged that they are looking at that Facebook post that they say he he. Uh, you know, put up just moments before the attack. They, you know, this could be a motive. Um, there was a lawyer at court today who's, who's uh, sort of offered her services 
uh, pro bono to surviving victims, and she said uh, she's surprised that terrorism charges haven't been laid because she thinks that the fact that he uh, clearly appeared to be misogynistic and had a hatred towards women, she believed that was a form of a terror attack. But there's been no indication that police are going to lay those charges. So I, I think everyone wants to believe it, you know, that, to say it is a van attack, I think some experts said to me that would be simplifying. Hmm. Uh, simplifying so you talked about terrorism charges, and of course we've read what the lawyer had to say about all of this. Uh, this apparently a terrorism charge lays lies around ideology. Does it have to be a religious ideology or or violent? Or, or I mean, you're talking about the incels here. How does that fit into the picture? Well, well that's what this lawyer representing um, you know some of the survivors was saying. Is she doesn't understand why that kind of ideology wouldn't be considered terrorism. I'm, I'm not a terrorist as an expert, but clearly the RCMP have not yet uh, come to the conclusion that um, he fits uh, the profile of someone who uh, should be charged with terrorism charges, at least as of yet. How big a part do you think the whole incel thing will play in this investigation and, and the outcome? Well, obviously, police you know, have to look at that as, as, as a potential, as, um, maybe evidence as, as to his mindset. Uh, we, we did ask the lawyer today, has he had a mental fitness test? Uh, the lawyer wouldn't comment on that. Um, you know, we haven't heard any reports that he was mentally unfit. Uh, by all accounts, he, uh, you know, has autism, but that doesn't mean he has a mental health issue. Uh, and he's never had a, uh, he's never been before the courts. He doesn't have a criminal record. So, of course, police are going to look at that, uh, that Facebook post. They said they're going to look at it and see if it did uh, play a part in why he, he allegedly did what he did. Uh, I guess it's, or, or some could say that he just snapped. He didn't show any signs of this. He just snapped. But then on the other hand, you've got these Facebook posts, which obviously point to intent. No? Well, I would think so. And also, we also know that he went to, to the truck uh, rental place north right. of Toronto that morning and got the truck. And, uh, you know, to then carry out, a, uh, allegedly carry out an attack like this, why would you, you know, yeah. if this is something that just happened, well, uh, why would you go and you know, actively, proactively rent a, rent a van? Will we find out more about this person once this goes to trial, or will this just sort of fall off the radar, do you think? No, no. I mean, look, today in another courtroom in the very same courthouse, uh, there was a guilty plea to a fatal hit and run, an impaired driving case that I covered. And, you know, I was quite curious to see what was going on there. And uh, in that case, I mean, Six months ago, I was reporting about this woman, hmm. uh, and and uh, you know what we learned by you know through social media and her friends of this and this and that. Today, I sat, I was sitting in that courtroom, and I was hearing you know that she's had you know, some tragedy in her life. She had recently gone through some tragedy, so you a lot comes out. And in this case, it was a plea. If if Alec Manassian does. Um, you know, uh, plea out in this case, where there will be an agreed statement of facts, and that will be something the Crown and the defense decide on. These are the facts of the case, and this is who this man is. If it goes to trial, we are going to hear at trial, hopefully from if his defense, uh, uh, you know, mounts a defense about what, you know, what he was going through in his life at the time of the, of the attack. Do you think this will go to trial? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, you know, his, he's, it just, I guess it depends on the lawyer. I'm sure... Uh, yeah. For the victims, I think everyone would love to see this uh, go to a plea, um, but because uh, it would be a very painful trial for all the victims, and there are so many, and I can tell you there were no victims in court today because I'm sure for many of them they want to forget what happened as much as they want to know what's going on. Um, first of all, you come to court, you get swarmed by reporters, and that's not easy. Uh, Alec Manassian's father, who was there at his first appearance, did not come today, and and uh, if you saw the video, no one can blame him. Mm. Uh, this family has gone, I'm sure, going through their own. Uh, you know, pain given that their son is accused of this horrible attack. 
Uh, how is the family? Do we know anything more about the family? No, just that the lawyer for Manassian did say that he is in touch with the family. He says they're suffering, um, as you can as you can imagine. Mm. Uh, we haven't heard any more from them. Any more on victims? Well, we got the list uh, today from court of um, you know the information has a list of all the new of all the three new charges, the victims of three new charges. So we have uh, three new names, and we're trying to learn more about those people. But we do know that um, I got an update today from Sunnybrook that an, I think five, four or five of those people who. Uh, remain in hospital, one in Sirius, and we know at least one is at, still at St. Mike's. So here we are, you know, a few weeks out from this this attack, and there are still people who are still in hospital with, with very serious injuries. Um, uh, the lawyer for one woman who's still in hospital says that uh, she, she remains in, in the ICU, though she's in Sirius, and she has a long road ahead. The family continues to pray. Catherine McDonald has been with us, crime specialist and award-winning journalist uh, for Global News, and of course, make sure you're watching Global News for the latest on this. Catherine, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A woman has, uh, well, lost her cool and then lost her job after a video was posted on social media of her racist tirade at a Denny's in Lethbridge. Uh, The video was posted of the exchange and the man saying who was the victim, every culture and every human being should be respected. Here, is, here are two clips. The first clip is the of the actual tirade. The second is of the person who it was directed at. First, here's the tirade. I was born and raised you here. I am Canadian. You relax. It doesn't matter. We're all Canadians. No, you you're yeah. not Canadian. Yes, we're all no, the same. No, you are not You're Canadian. a human being. I'm a human being. You There's are not Canadian. special about you. No, you are not Canadian. It does not matter. You that know doesn't what? make me. You know what? You I have a different opinion than you. I don't care. And I don't I give don't a f- what you think. I don't care what How you say. That? I don't care what that? you say. Good for you. Well, go- Oh, my. And uh, this is what uh, the person who was victimized had to say. Literally, I started from scratch with my brother, and every single of my friends were like that as well. So um, for us to see those things and, and, and gets depreciated for no reason, and that's made me think of it, so I should post it so the public should know about it. Is there actually anybody, and by the way, we all come from a family of immigrants. Uh, you know, my mom came over here when she was 14. Uh, does, does anybody doubt how hard immigrants work when they come to this country? Like, are you kidding me? Does anybody think these guys get a free ride? Any different than your parents did? Than your grandparents did? I mean, it, it's just, it amazes me to no end. It just amazes me to no end. Um, but I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, and, and, of course, with the technology that we have today, uh, these sort of events are captured. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant uh, for Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hang on. Are you there? Oh, there you are. Are you there? My fingers aren't working today. Man. <laughs> Dead air. Uh, I'm gonna. Can someone please come in and drive? I just want to sit in the back seat. I want an autonomous radio show today. Is that asking too much? So, what are your thoughts when you hear this? Oh See gosh. this? Oh my gosh! Will this poor woman thoughts. ever? I'm not gonna say poor woman. Will this woman ever work again? You know, it'll be a long, long time. She might have to start her own business in anger management. I mean, I don't know. This was, you know, there's a number of things I think about this, is that something like this still happens. 
that there is absolute hatred uh, that is um, flung towards immigrants. And, you know, honestly, like these guys have been in the country for 13 years. Mm -hmm. the, he, the fellow had lived in Lethbridge for 13 years. You know, he considers himself a, a Canadian as much as she does. And, you know, honestly, yeah, the whole, the, her whole sort of um, excuse was crazy. She says, well, I felt that they were making fun of me. I knew, I, I knew they were making fun of me. Well, they were speaking in their own language. Yeah, how, how did she possibly know that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's 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 upsetting. It's disheartening. Um, I I I'm actually quite shocked by the whole thing. All right, I'm going to place devil's advocate here. There was she went on to say, although she admitted what she said was racist and wrong and all of this stuff, she basically admitted every. Well, how can you not? It's right there on video. Uh, she said, "You didn't hear what he said ahead of time. You didn't hear what he said before that. Does that have any bearing here, even if something was said?" But it was in another language. And how does she know that it was directed at her? Hmm. She seems awfully thin-skinned, Scott. And maybe when he was talking, he might have glanced up. I mean, those booths are very close together. And yeah. she heard them talking. She didn't like the fact that perhaps that he was talking about her. We don't know. It was in another language. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And, and quite honestly, you know, someone just doesn't turn into a racist hurling epithet, Scott. Yeah. You know, you've got to have this within you, and this is probably not that out of character for her. All right, let's talk about others' responsibilities here. What about Denny's? What's their responsibility here? Well, Denny's does have to issue an apology to the customer, and they should say, you know, this is not what we represent, this is not the type of customers that we, you know, we usually have or, um, or engage with. But they do have to take some sense of responsibility because it was a customer, he was there with two other friends. This is likely not the first time that they've gone to Denny's. It seemed like a local restaurant. And I think that they have to offer some sort of statement acknowledging uh, the action and showing empathy around it. Uh, the CTB reports that the police said that there was nothing they could do, although they are examining the video now as part of an investigation, and that the restaurant asked the people to leave. Their food had just arrived, and they asked them to pick it up and go. They asked which people to... Well, from what I understand, the victim. Now, whether they asked them both to go, I'm not sure. We don't know those details at this point. Well, if that's the case, if they asked the victim to leave, yeah, uh, you know, they have a little bit more to answer for if that's the case. Because uh, that's, I mean, it's very obvious what happened. But, you know, the other thing, too, Scott, that I want to bring up is, is that, you know, we live in a citizen journalism culture. So somebody saw this going on. They saw this woman absolutely acting out and not caring that people had picked up their iPhones, including one of the fellows sitting at the table, but other customers in the in yeah. the restaurant picked up their iPhones to film this. Now, I would say that the second person who picked up the iPhone, they did um, kind of come to the defense of the fellow. But honestly, if it's so important for you to pick up your iPhone, do it and then do something about the action happening in front of you. Hmm. So that being said, what about the responsibility of the staff of the restaurant? Do they not have a responsibility here to stop this or attempt to or call police? I guess they did call police, but... Uh... Well, uh, well, I think that, you know, that you, you have to gauge the nature of the situation. Also, the woman was getting quite physical. And you knew she was getting physical because yeah. her male companion had to restrain her. So because she was getting physical and he was like trying with, he was like, had a good grip on her to prevent her from leaping over the side of the, um, of the bench. So, you know, right away from there, you know, th this is very, something very hard for an employee to handle. 
Um, and their first call to action really is to call the police. Did the partner do enough? Uh, as you mentioned, you could see how, how he had his, his arm up trying to, uh, on top of the booth there between the two of them, I guess trying to, to, to keep a handle on her. Why didn't he just get her the hell out of there? Well, you know, he was between a rock and a hard place, quite honestly. Um, you know, I think he was, he might have tried to get her the hell I don't know, out of there, you know, the scene but... I saw, I, the scene I saw, he almost looked like he was smirking. I didn't really look that closely. I mean, I did see that he was holding her quite tightly to prevent her from leaping over the uh, the booth. But, you know, whether... And, and if he was smirking, then that just, to me, um, speculatively only, that he... Uh, this is not the first time that she's, you know, gone... Um, you know, she's gone on some sort of tirade, and he absolutely... This didn't seem to surprise him. So it's... Um, it's just a sad, it's really just a sad day to be a Canadian, honestly. And what about police? What do they do with this video? You know, what's interesting, what, you know, what can, they can do. There wasn't any, there weren't any punches thrown. Mm. Uh, you know, she was obviously, she was a tourist, first of all. She, you know, or she was just visiting somebody within the, the city of Lethbridge itself. You know, I'm not sure what they can do. I mean, she wasn't, I don't know if it could be ca- um, categorized under a hate crime or not, but it. Um, it's you know what I honestly don't know what they can do, and I think that they're reviewing the tape. And remember, this happened in mid-April, and it wasn't until later, well, yesterday, that they decided to release the tape. So I have to say that this probably came as a, a shock to um, to the woman who was you know hurling the insult. So what does it say? Because it's came, it has come later. You know, I guess that the guy had shown it to a couple of friends, and they said, you know, you need to expose this woman. There was no reason for you to sit there and take yeah. that and to be and to be abused like that. So it seemed to me like I've only and, and this is just me looking at the fellow, but you know, just from his body language and his language, he says, you know, this is something that really upset me. We didn't egg this woman on at all, and my friends feel that you know this type of behavior has to be exposed. So, uh, you know, you can sort of slice that way any way you want. I don't think that he was looking for huge notoriety. I have to believe that his intentions were to expose that, you know, there is racism in the heartland of the country. So do we not post this stuff? Do we, or, or Should this person just have kept it to themselves or do you, do you expose this person? I think it depends on the severity of it. And this is pretty severe, I have to say. Um, you know, the, the other thing, too, is that you have to recognize the consequences. If you're going to, uh, you know, expose a video like this, it's, that the, the likelihood is that it's going to go viral, number mm-hmm. one. The second thing is, is that, you know, all attention is going to be on you. So you better be ready to answer any questions that come along with it. So don't be surprised when the media comes banging down your door. That's the second thing. The third thing is, is the consequences. You know, what's the, what, what will be the consequences for the woman? What will be the consequences for you? And you really, really have to take a good look at your own actions within this whole scenario to make sure that none of that culpability falls on you. The fact that she was drunk, any excuse? No. Ten people tend to speak the truth when they're drunk, don't they? Hmm. Uh, what I ab- wouldn't know, Steve. I mean, I mean, Scott, I don't get drunk. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. So can Lethbridge say, hey, this isn't, it's not a reflection on our town. This person's from Cranbrook, B.C. You know what they're like there. 
Can we? I, I'm still thinking. I, I've got to say something about the fact that the guy's wearing a hat sitting in a booth at, at a Denny's. Like even in Lethbridge, take your dang hat off. Honestly, and you know, I would hope that if he's at a hockey game, he does the same. But. You know, yes, I think the mayor did come out and say something. This is not reflective of our citizens. And you know what's amazing is the chain reaction that happens when something like this is exposed. You know, everybody feels a sense of culpability, and they, but yet they don't want to be, you know, smeared with the same brush. So they automatically have to come out with a statement. So clearly um, the town of Lethbridge has their own communications department. So coming out with a statement that this doesn't reflect this and we don't, con- and, you know, we don't condone this, uh, I think was a smart thing to do. You know, Denny's needs to do the same. Um, what about Cranbrook? What about Cranbrook? Cranbrook, B.C., where she is from. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, if you look at this woman's last name, this obviously, you know, I think it was Poch, Pocha or Pocha. Pocha, yeah, yeah, P-O-C-H-A. I mean, I mean, that sounds like a name that probably came from another country. Mm. This woman very well could be uh, an immigrant herself with, you know, relatives that came over long ago. So, you know, we're all just a boat ride away, quite honestly. It just depends. I think this is, you know... uh you know, I think this is a much deeper issue given the nationality of the gentleman. All right, let's talk about something. Uh, hmm, how about election? Uh, oh, we are two. Okay. We're, we're two days. Uh, hang on, fast U-turn here. Yeah. Uh, uh, election one or two days in. I guess it's Wednesday now. One day in, Thursday, two days it would be, wouldn't it? Uh, mm. What are your thoughts on how these three candidates have presented themselves so far? Well, you know, it's interesting. Andrew Horvath is really riding a wave here. Mm. You know, some may see where I say. Gee, well, where, where was she the whole time when, you know, she was in government? And uh, why weren't they making some noise there? And, and even when, you know, the Liberals made that very sort of forward um, decision, well, I don't know if it's a forward decision, but they made that decision to start take on sort of NDP-like um, strategies and policies in order to try and garner that vote. Even then, I think she was sort of rendered mute. Then suddenly she comes up at this debate and boom, you know, she shows up. And says, okay, and all of a sudden you, you see her talking and, and expressing opinion and her knowledge on policy. And she is riding a bit of a wave right now. I know that there was a recent poll that came out that gave her some very good numbers, gave her a bit of a, a list, quite honestly. So, you know, she's riding high, to be quite honest. And honestly, she's got the least to lose, the least to lose. Uh, would she have a better chance of becoming premier if she was a liberal? Yes, Will will the party hold her back? I mean, because everybody, you know, even all she has to do is stand back and go, look at these two. Do you believe it? And, and, you know, people will nod their heads, but is it enough for them to forget about Ray Days? Well, it's not enough for me to forget, Scott. Hmm. And I remember Ray Days well, and I remember waking up. I think that election went on into the wee hours. Mm -hmm. And I remember waking up thinking, what? We have an NDP government? And I think all of Ontario shook their head on that one. And I think that there's enough voters. I mean, you know, we are in a gray population right now, and I think there's enough of us walking around that remember the scourge of Ray Days. You know, I've been talking to conservative insiders, and what they're saying is, you know, let's just play defensive. Let's just not try and screw up. Are you surprised they're not being more defensive? Well, I think that they, you know, Doug Ford's, grasp of policy and statistics is low. 
And you can tell when he he you know when I hear audio clips of him uh, giving a speech, and you know you can know when somebody is speaking freely, and you know when somebody is looking down at the paper, making sure they have the numbers right. So he doesn't know the current state of the union on a number of files. And their narrative seems to be, we're going to do this correctly. We're going to make it proper. And I have to tell you, this whole narrative of proper and correctly, is, I think that it might end up buying, biting them in the butt because, you know, this is sort of like a Trumpian type of thing. We're going to clean the swamp and we're going to do everything correctly. So I don't know, Scott. Why did they go that far in that direction? I mean, especially when we have an incumbent that's been there, for, or the party's been there for 15 years like why even go there it, 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 it never i think it's mainly to appeal to certain populations that they know that they want their vote but they're there it, anyway well you know it, it's like where are they gonna go i know it will uh, it's inter- interesting because i had lunch with a friend and he says you cannot vote for doug ford i don't care how bad kathleen Wynne is you have to vote for somebody else i'm like well excuse who's me, left want me to vote for he says green vote green and this guy's a dyed-in-wool, you know, he's, he's been in political life for years and years, and I'm just, I'm just sitting there staring at him thinking, what? But they, these are very divisive characters, and I think that what they have to do is just, you know, the conservatives are just trying to really, really p- play safe. Can you see them pulling a Tim Hudak or John Tory in the dying days of this? Oh, my gosh. I think that a lot of them... I still don't rule it out, man. No, I mean, I don't know. I think that, you know, a lot of people who are surrounding him right now, I know some of those people, and they're really smart. And I think that they have all sort of learned from history. Not to say never, you know, never say never, but I would be really, really surprised. I think they're going to stick to the hot button issues that speak to the people who are going to vote for them, which is exactly what Trump does. You know, he makes these decisions, and he really doesn't care what liberals think. He only cares what the people who are going to vote for him in the next election think. You mentioned he's not a detail guy. He has trouble when he starts talking about stats and policy and such. That being said, why not just rely on the the people's guarantee thing and, and just keep rolling with that? You know, I guess so, but I, I, I think that people still want to hear some substance. I think they still want to know that there's some substance behind the man other than I'm for the little guy, you know, and I can tell you, my friends, I'm going to change things. So tough talk. I mean, we're still a little bit wary of tough talk. We know exactly what he's doing. And I think that a lot of people may vote conservative, but they're there. They will hold their nose when they do it. You know, the distaste and dislike for Kathleen Wynne is palpable. This could be, you know, one of the yeah. biggest liberal defeats in the province to date. I mean, we don't know that, but it's, it's entirely possible and that the NDP will likely be in opposition. So, chew on that for a bit. Uh, Do you think the outcome of this election is predictable at this point in any way? Well, it depends what you think is predictable. I mean... Well, the way the polls say now that Ford's going to take it. Yeah, you know, it's polls... I do listen to the I do listen to polls. I hear what they have to say. Um, But polls have been known to be wrong, and they have you know, miscalculated on, on, on the election outcomes. But, you know, people do live and die by those numbers. Yeah, I, I think that Doug Ford will win, but um, 
You know, I might go out on a limb and say conservative minority. Hmm. Are you surprised that the Wynn Liberals, you've only got about a minute left here, are you surprised the Wynn Liberals are where they are? I mean, it seems they just have really missed the mark with what is resonating with Ontarians. It's just, it seems like they're on another planet. Listen, Kathleen Wynne is promising the world to everybody, but where were all those promises when she could have made them during her tenure? Well, there was an but announcement so, today, like 3,500 new nurses. And, yeah, you know, I've got the nurse, yeah. head of the Nurses Association saying, well, you know, this goes back to the Harris days. It's like, that was 15 years ago. It's taken her 15 years to hire 3,500 nurses? Well, exactly. People see through these promises. They don't care how much she knows in the debate. They don't care what she's promising. All they care about is that she doesn't. Go, she is not back in the Premier's chair after June 8th. That's all they care. Alyssa Freeman is with us. Alyssa Freeman, PR, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.